Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco Radio with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. This week, we speak with hip-hop pioneer Chuck D. You know, to see something and then, then put your, your mind to it, at my young age, it was like something I felt that I can do. Plus, our little travel guide to Whistler. When I think about summer here, it's very different from the east coast of Canada because it's not humid. It's a good temperature usually, so a really great place to be in the summer. All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Welcome to The Curator, our highlights of Monaco Radio this last week. Our first interview is a great one. Andrew Muller sits down with the groundbreaking hip-hop pioneer and revolutionary activist Chuck D to discuss his extraordinary career and his new illustrated memoir, Living Loud, Artitation. I wanted to start by asking about the art in your book, Live and Loud. And I, I wondered if for somebody who has become best known for working with words, you've, you, you've had some kind of sense of frustration at the instant impact that the visual artist can have. The image is just right there. People don't need to, to sit with it before they necessarily grasp its meaning. Yeah, I don't know if I, I don't I don't know what you mean by frustrations. Um, I never looked at it that way. I think my frustrations that really immersed this art to take place in the first place was my intolerance to hotel rooms. <laughs> uh, I think uh, when I found out that Ron Wood of the Rolling Stones, you know, just sketches his room before he enters it, or at least that's what he used to do, a light bulb went off in my head. It went ding. Okay, it's something to do with my downtime, uh, especially with Prophets of Rage in my most recent years. We're going to a city and, and be, you know, rendezvous there about three days. I guess most people would be like going to the bar, going to the city's, uh, you know, places to go. But after you've been to the city more than 10 or 15 times, it's like, Okay, uh, you have to make the most out of your hotel room. That's where a lot of this emerged. The book is kind of an illustrated autobiography. And is it right that the visual arts is, it's sort of where you saw yourself in the beginning. You, you saw yourself as a graphic artist. Yeah, as an illustrator. I wanted to be an illustrator. Graphic artist, I think, was next in line. Painter, fine artist was further down the line. And that really wasn't my desire. But um, Illustrator is what, the, at least the name caught my fancy. Somebody who didn't spend long at trying to come up with something in two dimensions, jot it quick, what hits my mind, and deliver it. But I think the technical aspect of what we had as tools in front of us, such as social media, made it a different outlet for my skill set than ever any time before. The immediacy, the ability to see something in front of you uh, socially or politically and then be able to, to turn it over in an instant. It was even better than, I guess, what newspapers had done in previous centuries to talk about something. It was kind of like the meshing of, of the future with the skills of the past. There's a couple of other suggestions in the book of paths that a, a younger you might have taken. I was intrigued by the idea that at one point you wanted to be a sportscaster. You, you wanted to be a, a commenter on, on basketball and baseball games. How seriously did you take that ambition? To the point that I wanted to also be an illustrator for sports as well. 
the newspapers in New York City uh, were able to, to seriously cover the sports pages and have a cartoonist such as a guy like Bill Gallo. The illustrators for sports were very important in the 70s, and uh, they were influential to me just as much as the sports pages talking about the games. So, uh, I mean, you know, to see something and then, then put your, your mind to it, at my young age, it was like something that I felt that I can do. It definitely wasn't about the comic books. Once again, it was a, a media, immediacy factor. I was like, wow, okay, let me go work on my speed. So that's one of the things I was able to do at university is to work on my speed and have a good sense of anatomy. <laughs> is it too much of a reach, though, to suggest that the the influence of that ambition and the sportscasters who nurtured it became an influence on you as a vocalist. It, it just struck me reading that section of the book that so much of the great sportscasters' talent is finding that right phrase to sum up a moment. Did the sportscasters influence you as a as a writer and as a vocalist? I think so. I think it was also a form of osmosis and how it just like kind of like seeped into me inadvertently and, and and it came out in the wash, so to speak. You know, I don't think with the future that we have now with the technology and social media that any of these skills would have been evident to a mass populace. I would just say say that uh, it's been helpful in all the ways. And I, I guess I was also influential in bringing the internet and digital media to sort of like even help and enhance music or peer-to-peer getting it across to somebody. So it, this is like a side effect that is, uh, has been something that has taken it from a hobby stage into something that, that a lot of people want. I mean, it got, it happened also to happen from a point where, you know, I would post things on social media and Twitter cause I don't do Instagram, although it's run by my team and, you know, uh, TikTok and YouTube and whatever. But it got to a point, you know, the, the response of how do I get this? <laughs> you know, do you sell your prints? And I mean, it, it got to a point where like, okay, I think we got to make something out of this because previously I was just saying, you know, hey, you know, pull it down, make a copy of it. Oh, was that high definition enough? And, you know, so it, it, it actually grew into something else. And, you know, I wanted to also, I think I was telling people, I said, listen, I'm doing this thing anyway, Andrew, but people kept asking for it. And I wanted to say, hey, listen, I want you to know that I'm an artist that did rap music, not a rap artist that happened to do the arts. I've been involved with the arts ever since I was zero. Just something that happened to be the right person at the right time in the right era to propose these type of skills. So I'm not the first, but I think one thing I want to do in the hip-hop nation is say, in hip-hop, the five elements are graffiti, DJing, breakdancing, and and also the arts. I mean, well, arts is graffiti. Um, breakdancing, also vocalization on the microphone, MCing. And then Dougie Fresh sometimes says the fifth element is beatboxing, which I think is vocalization, but, but and also musicianship. But yeah, it was one of those things where the art is still an aspect of hip-hop's creativity, and I have a little bit of that in my works, too. 
Was there a particular point as Public Enemy were coming up, and this is a, a trajectory you describe in the book, at which you realised that some of Public Enemy's language and some of Public Enemy's sounds, but especially the language, were beginning to have an impact in the wider culture? Because I can remember wondering about this myself in the mid-90s when you you started to see riffs on phrases like don't believe the hype, bring the noise and fight the power appearing as headlines in the Wall Street Journal and the Daily Telegraph. And I'm not even sure the sub-editors who wrote those headlines understood what the source material was. Well, I think it was also key that when I wrote the songs, I wrote the titles, keep it simple, stupid. (laughs) Make three words really have to be impactful. I kind of like wrote songs you know, from the title on down. But I think the important thing is to come up with a great title, which comes out of a, a good idea. And if you're able to have a good idea and come up with a great title, then it makes the song structuring and the process of writing something to any type of music, especially if some music is really rumping and fits the, the words and really good. It makes it an enjoyable process, Andrew. I get kind of picturesque in my, in my arrangements. I mean... Today, I lingered on longer about, you know, uh, my day because I had to, you know, create and craft three songs for Flavor Flav that I have to sketch out tomorrow. So I had to be able to be a songwriter and I had to really kind of like make pictures with words. But now, you know, also I have the other side of my brain that's able to make words into pictures. So it's gone back and forth. Two-way traffic, Andrew. That was Chuck D talking to Andrew Muller. That was part of the big interview. You can listen to other uh, big interviews episodes on monaco.com. And for Tall Stories this week, the spin-off show of The Urbanist, Mariella Bevan browses an historic library that is helping to preserve the written heritage of the Portuguese language in Brazil. Located in the heart of Rio de Janeiro is one of the most beautiful libraries in the world. The Royal Portuguese Cabinet of Reading is a marvel of Gothic architecture, featuring a cast-iron chandelier which towers over the centre of the room, hanging from a stained-glass skylight that casts red and blue light over its visitors. Golden arches fan outwards from the dome ceiling and books with jewelled-toned spines line the walls three storeys high. The black-and-white stone tiles underneath your feet as you walk through the library make for a striking contrast to the dark woods of the shelves. The facade of the building, constructed from Lisbon stone, stands out amongst the surrounding buildings, with several turrets rising above the street. Above the ornately decorated entrance are four statues, honouring three Portuguese explorers and one depicting the poet Luís Vaz de Camoes, who is widely considered the greatest poet of the Portuguese language. This stunning building is home to a collection of 350,000 books, growing by 6,000 each year, and is the largest collection of Portuguese-language works outside of Portugal. Its doors were opened in 1887 by a group of Portuguese immigrants who wanted to preserve their country's written heritage after Brazil gained independence in 1882. Architect Rafael da Silva e Castro designed the library in Neo-Manuelini style, a revival of the late Gothic architecture popular in Portugal. Manuelini architecture developed during the reign of Manuel I of Portugal in the 16th century and is an exuberant style that coincided with the age of exploration as well as the peak of Portuguese maritime power. 
The decorations often incorporate elements such as maritime motifs, rope-like detailing and floral patterns. Quintessential features of Manuelini architecture can be found in doorways, windows, portals and arcades, which are often crafted with complex and intricate designs. Alongside the neo-Gothic style that had become popular in several European countries, the neo-Manuelini style rose in popularity in Portugal. This resurgence developed during a time of romantic nationalism, featuring Portuguese symbols such as the armillary sphere, as well as symbols of the Portuguese discoveries, including twisted ropes, exotic fruits, sea monsters and plants. Although the original Manuelini style did not make its mark on the architecture of Brazil, this revival style could be found in abundance throughout the country. Today, the Royal Portuguese Cabinet of Reading publishes a journal of Portuguese literature and culture, as well as offering courses on the Portuguese language, history, anthropology and the arts. Residents and tourists alike can participate in any of the activities held each week, whether they have Portuguese heritage or just want to learn more. This library began as a place to preserve the culture as well as ancient texts of Portuguese immigrants and continues to hold importance to Portuguese people in Brazil today. So much so, the library is classified as a legal deposit and receives all new works of literature published in Portugal. Libraries serve as an important function in any community, offering a free place of refuge, a quiet place to study, or a place to develop new interests. Even in our progressively digitised world, libraries are an indispensable resource for building community, especially in a busy, sprawling city. Even if you are not a native speaker, there is plenty to gain from visiting this Cathedral of Knowledge in Brazil's Rio de Janeiro. You are listening to The Curator, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Time for my weekly global countdown, and this one is slightly different format. Basically, are some of the highlights of the Monaco Summer Playlist, which was featured on Monaco's July-August issue. We actually have a Spotify full playlist as well, if you want to listen to it. But here are some of the highlights on this week's global countdown. It is the Global Countdown. Once again, I'm joined by Fernando Augusto Pacheco to look at singles charts somewhere to get the top five, except for that this time round, it's going to be top six, and we're actually looking at new editions of Monaco's playlist. Hello, Fernando. We always do little specials, Marcos, and today's the third installment of the Monaco Summer Playlist 2023. And, you know, I chose songs that I think you might like. Oh. You can be really honest, Marcos, with me, you know, but... Because obviously I haven't been before. Yes. No, I'm joking. You always, you are very honest, actually. Uh, it's divided in six different vibes. Mm -hmm. uh, and the first one is French Summer, which means it's the best French artists of the moment. Uh, and the first track is by Rob and Jack Lahana. Uh, and the song features the band Catastrophe. It's called Tupi. Let's have a listen. It is 
pleasant. I would imagine listening to something like this in the background when I'm having a cocktail at a bar that's somewhere great. by that's, water. That's great. And even the name of their album is called Summer Camp. Uh, uh, you know, and Rob, uh, he used to play with the band Phoenix, which is one of the most famous. I like them bands. very much. They're very good, Phoenix. Uh, so yes, it's it's a, it's a light-hearted track, uh, perfect for the summer. And you know, I have a bit of a penchant for French artists mm. as well. Well, my notes say that the next song is called Summer Jamming. Oh, I love this track. So the vibe is maritime beats. And I don't know, Marcus, I'm feeling very nostalgic today. And this song is very nostalgic. It's a little bit cheesy, mm-hmm. but we don't mind that, do we? And Inner Circle, I mean, they are a band from Jamaica. They were formed in 1968. Not many people know that. And then they, I think, you know, the band split. But then they returned in the mid-80s. And of course, they, they had mega hits, including this one. So just relax and feel the summer jamming of oh, Inner Circle. Okay, I'll try. <laughs> Okay, I tried to close my eyes even for a moment, but I didn't. I don't think I relaxed quite as much as you had intended, Fernando. Well, I mean, because this song for me reminds me of my childhood. You know, I don't know. There's something quite sad as well. This longing for youth. Maybe I'm reading too much into summer jamming. In maybe a way. it's maybe it's because you had your birthday recently, Fernando. Exactly. Or so many things are happening, Marcus. But a great track. Mm. And Inner Circle, they have sweat. They have uh, bad boys. But I think summer jamming is a good one. Well, Fernando, I know you quite well, and I know that this is your kind of music. The next song is called Amor e Sexo and I can only try to guess what that means Love and Sex and we're going to hear a clip, it's from the late Brazilian queen of rock, Rita Lee uh, we'll play a little bit, it's in Portuguese I will translate it because I think the lyrics are very smart, let's have a listen Do you want to tell us any more details yes. about what exactly Rita Lee was singing about over there? It's poetry, okay? Yeah. Keep Listen to me. Mm. Love is a book. Sex is sport. Sex is choice. Love is luck. Love is divine. Sex is animal. And finally, love is bossa nova and sex is carnival. Beautiful. That's, that's really deep. <laughs> it's really deep, I think. It, it, it shows the difference. Both are important in our lives. Love and sex. Okay, <laughs> uh, let's continue with the next song, Fernando. It's Evening Seduction and it's by Mina. Uh, you know, Mina is an all-time classic of Italian pop. I love her. All Italians know her. I chose a track. This has been remastered uh, recently, so it looks a little bit more modern. This is Mina with Amante Amore. that very much, Fernando. Amante Amore. 
It might be related to the previous song because it's a story about a woman that decided to have a love story with a stranger for one night only. How did that happen in practice? I have no idea, but I hope it was a good evening. Me too, me too. <laughs> we have a couple of songs left, by the way. We have a special top six today when it comes to songs we have on our playlist. And I think I may have heard the next track already. Yes, Discoteca Paradiso. It's the song of the summer. It's Kylie Minogue. Impressive, Marcos, because Padan Padan started, you know, okay, new Kylie track, you know, nobody was surprised, but it was a grower, even in the UK singles chart, every week it did better and better, and it's still being played, not just in the UK, I have to say, in Australia, she's doing very well, in the US, she's having a lot of TV appearances, I think it's fun, I mm. think it's, it reminds me of Can Get You Out Of My Head a little bit. Let's, little let's bit. have a quick listen and let's discuss this further then. So when I heard this for the first time, I thought it's just an okay track. And then I started hearing it more and more everywhere. Mm. And I agree, it's a grower. I feel like yeah. I, I quite like it nowadays. And also what makes it quite interesting is that it's really short. Two minutes, 46 seconds, by the way. Which is what people like these days. And and how funny. I think that's the trick of a good song. Sometimes you might not like it at the beginning, but then, you know, you hear a few times and it's great. Uh, well done, Kylie, you know. Absolutely. Well, we have one song left, Fernando. What are we going to be listening to next? This is for On The Road playlist, which is songs for when you're driving. And this is some great South African synth disco. Uh, South Africa, for me, is one of the most fascinating countries. You know that, musically. And this guy, Don Lack, I think he mixes, you know, South African jazz with some disco, with some electro in such a nice way. This song is Pure Good Vibes. It's by Don Laka, I Wanna Be Myself. say I like this Fernando Good, so good. And he was uh, qu quite influential, I think, in South Africa. He worked with a lot of American musicians as well. Uh, what a great guy and a great song to end the playlist as well. Great songs. Thank you very much for this, Fernando. I feel like Monocle Radio's playlist is in very good hands this summer. And from the Concierge, our travel show, we have a part of the show called The Lowdown, in which we shine a spotlight on a must-visit destination, in this case, Whistler, British Columbia, which famously hosted the 2010 Winter Olympics. But this Canadian alpine resort town actually sees more visitors come summer. Monaco's Gregory Scruggs headed up the sea to Sky Highway to see what's on tap when the snow melts. I've taken ski holidays to Whistler for over 20 years, but I admit that the siren song of the snow has kept me from exploring beyond the pistes. And it turns out, summer offers healthy doses of adventure, culture, and relaxation. Journeys to Whistler typically begin in Vancouver, and whether you hire a car or take a shuttle, keep your eyes peeled as you make your way from sea level to the mountains along the scenic Sea to Sky Highway. On your left, feast your eyes on the waters of Howe Sound, 
a UNESCO biosphere reserve dotted with islands, while to your right, lush old-growth forests run up steep mountainsides. About halfway there, you'll leave the saltwater behind and head inland until you reach Worcester Village. You can park the car without a worry and need not stress about calling a taxi. Worcester Village is built around a pedestrian-friendly corridor, the Village Stroll, packed with shops, cafes, bars, restaurants, and nightclubs. There are multiple five-star hotels to choose from, all within walking distance. While Whistler sits at a modest 675 meters in elevation, so there's no need to worry about altitude sickness, the resort's namesake mountain climbs up to a height of over 2,000 meters. From the village, gondolas whisk you into the high country, where you can set off on any number of alpine tracks. For the ultimate scenic ride, take the peak-to-peak gondola between Whistler and Blackcomb Mountains. The 11-minute journey crosses the world's longest unsupported span, so for over three kilometers, you'll be suspended mid-air and provides panoramic views into the heart of the glaciated coast range. Both ends of the gondola feature well-appointed day lodges with sun decks and restaurants, should you fancy a glass of Okanagan Valley Riesling with a view. Back down in the village, I met up with Whistler resident and four-time Olympian Mercedes Nickel for the scoop on how to spend those long summer days. Planning your summer holiday for Whistler, why would you do that? Mostly because we have gorgeous views, mountains, lakes. We have the options of if you want to just stay in the valley and do summer sports, or you can go up on our gondolas and head up the mountain and do like a 13-kilometer gondola ride and see how beautiful all of our mountain tops are. But also, if you're going to just be in the village, we have canoeing, paddleboarding, swimming, but be mindful that our lakes are glacier lakes, so they're a lot colder than you're used to, which kind of when I got here full-time in the summers was a little shock to the system, but it's really refreshing on a very warm day. And when I think about summer here, it's very different from the east coast of Canada because it's not humid. It's a good temperature usually, so a really great place to be in the summer. We have a lot of forest around us, a lot of trees, a lot of greenery. We can hear the birds chirping around us. You're probably bound to see a black bear if you are walking along any of our golf courses here in Whistler, which we have three of. So that's always kind of exciting for some people to see a bear if they've never seen one before. But again, reminder that they are wild animals and don't get too close because (laughs) you never know what they're going to do. And what's the vibe like in Whistler Village in the summer? Is it is for folks who are used to a, a bustling opera ski scene in the winter season, what's the drinking, dining, hanging out, people watching scene like in the summertime around here? Yeah, so summer in the village is probably maybe busier than it is in the winter. The patios open up, lots of great food, lots of fun people watching, and a lot of bikers. So this is kind of the mecca for bikers in the whole world. We have one of the best bike parks. So what that means is bikers will line up just like you do for a chairlift and put their bikes on the chairlift, go up the mountain, and then bike down and do it all over again. While the mountain bike culture runs deep in Whistler, for culture of a different stripe, make your way to the O'Dane Art Museum. Vancouver property tycoon Michael O'Dane and his partner Yoshiko Karasawa founded the museum in 2016 to house their extensive art holdings. A stroll through the permanent collection will give you keen insights into the mixture of indigenous, western, and Pacific Rim cultures that define British Columbia. 
Museum director and chief curator Curtis Collins told me why O'Dane chose Whistler. When he was thinking about creating a museum that was dedicated to the art of BC in terms of the permanent collection, he toured a number of communities throughout British Columbia. However, landed on Whistler because Whistler is an international resort. And the fact that we see skiers and summer visitors from around the world has beautiful hotels, wonderful restaurants, and all the amenities of, uh, I would say, a, a wonderful resort experience. So the museum was a natural fit. Why should a, a visitor to Whistler in the summertime who might be drawn to trails and lakes and uh, all of the outdoor amenities, why should they also carve out some time to come indoors to the Audain Art Museum? In British Columbia, the environment and outdoor activities play a very important role in our cultural identity and how people from beyond BC experience us. But coming indoors to see how those things are represented in photographs, paintings, and carvings, I think will give you a thicker experience of British Columbia. And you can come to terms with the cultural realities of such a fantastic province. So welcome at the Scandinavian Spa. In the spa, I recommend the thermal journey. So you start with something hot for 10-15 minutes to relax your muscles, increase the blood flow. In the middle of the spa, we have the wood-burning sauna. At the bottom, the uh, electric one. Then we have two steam rooms and two hot pools. Whether you've pushed it a little too hard, climbing mountains, or throwing down at the disco, the Scandinavian Spa is just the ticket for a morning of rest and relaxation. The hot pools, saunas, steam room, and of course the cold plunge, are all surrounded by lovely evergreen trees. You're basically at a spa in a forest, and yet perched at the upper edge of the property on a sun deck with hammocks and shade structures. You can also enjoy panoramic views of the Coast Mountain Range as you relax and prepare for your next day's adventure. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are listening to The Curator, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. This week we also head to the Portuguese capital, Lisbon, to visit one of its lesser-known districts, Graça, home to several sites where travelers can take in picturesque panoramas of the city skyline, the Graça neighborhood still manages to retain the feel of a small town and is home to some promising chefs and bars where diners can explore the many flavors and aromas of Portuguese cuisine. Monaco's correspondent Ivan Carvalho guides us through the area's vibrant culinary scene. Blessed with a few prime vantage points from which to admire the Lisbon cityscape, the neighborhood of Graça also provides plenty to look at on the plate as it counts a collection of restaurants where seasonal produce from the land and sea and traditions from regional Portuguese cooking are championed. 
Before sitting down for a bite at a table in Grazza, one should first wet their lips at wine bar Vino Vero. Run by Italians from Venice, this evening hangout on the lively pedestrian strip of the Resto do Monte is a safe haven for fans of natural wine from Portugal and abroad and has an ever-changing menu of whites, reds, and sparkling vintages by the glass. When hunger calls, a stop at Chef Vittorio Down's restaurant, Plano, is in order. A native of the far north of Portugal, in the region of Trajos Montes, Adel is eager to show off the culinary stories of his birthplace, and found the down-to-earth vibe of the Grasse area to his liking. This neighborhood, it's, it's very familiar. Coming to my restaurant and see uh, the people talk in the street, the, the neighbors. Uh, and I don't see this, uh, this in the other parts of uh, Lisbon, and I, I, I love... Uh, go to the street and uh, speak with uh, Dona Mel. It's Dona Mel is in front of my restaurant. Every day I say hello. I mean, the menu have um, 80% of uh, seafood and fish. The sea and river, I use uh, trout. It's from the river in the North Boutiques. It's for me one of the best fish. I, I bring uh, every week's potatoes. I love potatoes. Uh, I serve uh, six... In this moment, six different uh, of variety of potatoes. I bring uh, smoked ham, I bring beef veal, I bring vegetables, uh, and bring water. For me, it's very important. Uh, the region of Trajumontes have uh, six different sparkling water, uh, natural, and um, every month I, I bring the best products I, I see in my, in my city. Heading back towards downtown, in a square not far from the Jardin de Cerca de Grassa Park, which offers spectacular views of the San Jorge Castle, you can share small plates of sumptuous Alentejo regional cooking with a delicate contemporary twist at the restaurant Taberna do Coriel. Overseeing proceedings is Leopold Garcia Coriel, an architect turned chef who is also obsessed about wine. At his restaurant, the chef has recreated the atmosphere of a modern Alentejo tavern with his family mementos and furnishings, as well as new yet tradition-minded courses of roasted pork cheek and ceviche-style hake with lemon, olive oil, coriander, and egg. If you tire of exploring the streets and alleyways as you go up and down the hills in Grasa, be sure to visit the taproom at the brewery of Oitava Colina and quench your thirst with one of their craft beers, which include an easygoing blonde ale and a dark, robust porter beer. While other parts of Lisbon continue to be invaded by trendy restaurant concepts, offering a mix of international cuisine and slick interiors, in Grasa one comes across several tascas, informal trattorias, typically decorated with simple white tablecloths and wood chairs that provide a selection of local fish, such as grouper and presebs barnacles. At restaurants like Penalva de Grasa and restaurant Opitu de Grasa, this helps to preserve the neighborhood character of the area, as Chef Pitura Down points out, where locals greet each other in the street before breaking bread at the table. For Monocle, in Lisbon's Grassa district, I'm Ivan Carvalho.
and it's been a fun week when it comes to documentaries here on Monaco Radio. The first one of the interviews I did myself with the directors and producers of All Man, the international male story, a documentary about a catalogue that changed men's fashion and the perception of masculinity in the U.S. Once upon a time, a small band of outsiders formed an unlikely family, and together they created something that would change the way men would look at themselves and how the world would look at them. When you say international male, I get very excited. It was Victoria's Secret for men. 20 pages of just men in their underwear. It made me feel like, whoa. International male was this sort of boundary-pushing men's mail order fashion catalog and subsequently a few stores that opened that existed between the mid-1970s through the early aughts. It was the vision of Jean Burkhardt and a team of people who really saw a need for there to be a greater range of men's fashion available in the United States. He had had the fortune of living abroad for a decade, and he sort of saw men much more sort of expressive with their fashion. So he and the team of, of this family that we discovered along the way created and realized this new vision for men where they weren't so limited, where they could wear, you know, peach scoop neck tank tops and, and ruffled shirts. And it could be uh, sort of people were given permission to imagine themselves in it. In the same way that that everyone was allowed to imagine themselves, I think particularly for me, and I think for many gay men of my generation, it was a chance to see men in a way that I had never seen them before, and in a way that was also not threatening. They were international, they were mysterious, they were sexy, they were, but it didn't say gay. It didn't say gay the same way the Pet Shop Boys didn't say gay or Elton John didn't say gay. And there was something coded about all these things that I was like, why was I attracted to all these things? And I think that I think that we look, especially in the analog world at that time, for anything that we can sort of relate to or feels feels like us or feels connected to us. And that's how I felt about international mail. I didn't know how it came to my house. I thought at one point the jocks from school who teased me had sent it to me as a joke. I heard them doing this with other people and with other things. But I didn't care because it was this window into an imaginary world at a time when a lot of the representation on gay men specifically were dealing with HIV AIDS. Not that I thought of the two at that time together, but I think it's also what made it so special to me. Brian, what brought you to the project, uh, Dan? What's your, I, I know you know Jesse for a few years now as well, but tell us what made you interested in such a story. So Jesse and I had been working on another film at the time about growing up in the age of AIDS and the traumatic experiences that held for youth coming to terms with their sexuality at the time. And I had come off of a movie called Seed Money, the Chuck Holmes story that I edited, which was about the gay porn empire of Falcon Video and how its money had been used to help fund the gay rights campaign and people like Bill Clinton's presidential campaign, which 
you know, overall, I was really interested in, in sort of gay and queer history. And when Jesse showed me these catalogs, it was amazing to me, just the images themselves, the clothing, you know, they're again, in a way it's coded. It's also what you project onto it, you know, like straight men project a different type of image or context onto it than gay men do. And women also projected and lived in, in those worlds as well. I mean, they were the largest buyer of the clothes overall for their men, which we actually didn't know at the time. That was one of the things that we uncovered in the process of, of making this documentary. But yeah, I mean, just the initial impression to me was, wow, you know, these images are so storytelling. There's such narrative built into these images that unlike anything I had seen before, you know, in a catalog, maybe editorials and magazines. And so we thought it would be fun at the time because of its, I don't want to say its impact, but its special connection that gay men had to it because it was so, I guess you could say it was so critical or so highly involved in the formation of their identities when they were young and realizing that they were gay or different. And so initially it was to make this short film that would be a fun film looking at how gay men connected with it and how it was something that was a sexual awakening for them. And very quickly, as we started delving into it, and, and especially after our first interviews, we realized that this was a much bigger film that affected culture and society during this time in, in which male sexuality was exploding and also becoming a commodity in America. And also, I think one thing that I got from the film and, and International Mail, and Jesse, I know we're talking about analog. I mean, it's the importance of the catalog in general. I mean, I don't, I don't know, especially, you know, in, in the mid-70s when, when this catalog was created. So tell us a bit more. I mean, because it, it was a physical product, of course, and I think the last one was in 2007. So tell us more about, was it, is this also about the importance of the catalog? I mean... I think that the why it sort of stands and why it's so important, it's interesting. We were talking in an interview yesterday and he kept referring to it as an archive, as this sort of history. And he, he was using the word archive in a much more liberal way than, than I've ever thought of the word, but in a way that's very cool. I think because this catalog was such an outlier, because it came to the comfort of your own home and your own mailbox, and because it showed people something that wasn't necessarily available at their local store. I'm talking specifically about the United States broadly, not urban centers like New York or Los Angeles. You know, people in the suburbs, people in the country, it gave them the freedom to sort of see not only these sort of boundary-pushing clothes or clothes they might have seen on Miami Vice or other television shows at the time, but it was a chance for them to purchase them. And something we've talked a lot about sort of in interviews is how the undergear catalog, which was the sort of more under it, you know, or you can wear, you can sort of express yourself through these clothes, perhaps in just the comfort of your own home or your most, you know, a small community around you. And I think it was sort of special because of that. We were limited in the analog world to what we had in front of us. 
whether it was the television, a movie, a magazine, or the department store. And here is a thing saying, you can be a lot more than all these things too. Or you can wear, you know, that white suit that Don Johnson was wearing with the slingback sandals. And you can wear it in, you know, Duluth, Indiana or wherever. <laughs> Duluth, I, Iowa. I'm I, not sure where Duluth is. I told you it was a little bit of a documentary special. And now Monaco's Tom Webb. He spoke to Chris Smith, director of the new documentary film, When. He discusses the story of the British band that dominated the global charts for years. I knew of Wham, but I didn't know the story behind the band. And so to me, I always feel like that's a great opportunity when, you know, it's something that you think you know, but then you, when you think about it, that you don't. This is, to me, the power of a good documentary. I must admit, I was never much of a Wham! fan, or George Michael, indeed, despite being a huge lover of music. In fact, 80s music as well. And I've come out the other end with this newfound appreciation. Was that your objective, perhaps? Were you looking to achieve that sort of feeling? I mean, I, I think that was similar to the experience I went on. I, I think that, you know, at the time I was probably like, a smug teenager that was, you know, listening to New Wave or, you know, the Smiths or whatever. And I don't think I appreciated Wham! the way that I do now, you know, in the sense of really understanding what they were trying to achieve, what they did achieve. Looking back at the, the music, it's like, I, I think that it's easy. It was easy at the time to think, oh, these are just like these pop songs. But I think when when you see like they, they truly like stand the test of time, which I think is hard to do, and I think it was a sort of an incredible achievement. Yeah, I think the thing that surprised me most was how fully formed the sound of Wham! was like we did we did we did find three demos that existed which were the first things they made which was Wham! Rap, Club Tropicana and um, Careless Whisper and my assumption was that these would be they were these home recordings on a four track that they would be very crude but it was shocking to see that like the sound and the vision for what Wham! became was there right from the outset and that to me was I think probably the greatest sort of discovery along the way was just like how talented they were and, and how much of a vision they had for what they wanted to do right from the outset. You know, we're sort of like archaeologists. We're trying to put together the material as best as we can understand what happened from what exists. And so you know, you do your best and you hope that, that, that it aligns with, you know, with their memory. But, uh, you know, I was incredibly relieved when Andrew finally saw the film that he felt that it was, you know, he said, I think something to the, along the lines of it was as good of retelling a representation to what the essence of what way I'm, what the experience was is, you know, that exists. So I, I think that, you know, I think that they made other attempts. So I, I felt Felt like that's, that was about as good as you're gonna get. Uh -huh. 
and thinking as an archaeologist, you were essentially gifted this scrapbook from Andrew's mother. How key was it in shaping the film? I mean, it was very, very thorough, her coverage of the group. Well, it wasn't just one scrapbook. I think there were 50 in total. It was like the Rosetta Stone for the project because it really charted the, you know, from day one, from when they signed the contract, all the way through, you know, the, the final show was so meticulously sort of gathered and collected and documented. And it, it was it was something that I think would have been very hard. You know, you can get a lot going back through archive, but there's definitely things that would have fallen through the cracks. So we were able to sort of, I think, put together a more complete version of the story because those existed for sure. We met when I was 11 and Andrew was 12. And there was only ever one thing that I wanted to do. You get so Be in a band with George. Andrew changed my life in exactly the way someone needed to change my life if I was going to be a pop star. And that was it. Wham! I think with this particular story, why it worked for me is that there was this incredible story behind the music in the sense that, you know, I didn't know about this friendship between these two people and sort of how that started and how that manifested itself in, in Wham! And sort of why Wham! had to end when it did. And the way that it ended, you know, all these things were new to me. And, and there was something so profound and beautiful and poignant about the story. And, and so for me, it made this particular story worth telling. I guess, you know, I've often found when you scratch beneath the surface of almost anything, if you have the right lens, you can find a way in. So, but I, I struggle to think that I'll find something like this again, because it, to make a movie about something as simple as friendship. I think it, it, it seems very difficult to imagine that that could be appealing. Yet to me, it's like, it's one of the favorite projects that I've you know been a part of. And to add to this pop culture fest here on Monocle Radio, for Comfort Corner, we sit down with Malian singer-songwriter Fatumata Diavara to talk about her life and new album, London Co. I was in Ivory Coast and then I moved to Bamako. And from there, I went to my aunt and she was an actress. Then my first year, I started to go with her on the film project. And one day, a director saw me and said, I wanted this girl in my movie. And he said, I like her when she smiles. She always brings light to us, you know, when we were in a hard time. And I just want to thank her. And then I become an actress. From that movie, another project came. I do one and another comes. So it was one after the other Till today, you know, people see me and want just to work with me. And the same things happen to the music, you know. My collaboration with Damon Albarn, uh, Herbie, or Herbie was an accident. I supposed to go to, to help Umu Sangare on a project in Paris. Imagine the song from John Lennon. Then Herbie saw me and he just asked me to, to sing with Umu. And she got a Grammy with that song. So it's like... Um, I just have to do it, just have to sing, yeah, for myself, but also for people. 
can do sometimes six songs per day in the afternoon. I like composing, you know, it's a different way for me to really exist, you know. It's not a job for me, it's a necessary. Music is necessary, it's like uh, taking out all my background, my, my women life, my, my past. Singing is always healing my soul, makes me feeling good. People feel it, people can feel it. I think that's why I'm here today. Because when you listen to my first record, Fatou, my voice is not even warm. I was going in the morning to the studio, sometimes I'm tired, and I didn't want to come back to the song. You know, Nick was like, we will do it. I said, no, no, no. And I said, it's okay, I'm fine. I just want to sing, I just want to sing. And it's incredible. The, the album had a lot of success. I think people like to see a woman in um, a very fragile moment, you know, not trying to be perfect. And it's not like a competition. It's about the emotion. How you want to talk to people, how you want to touch them. It's about how to feel their heartbeat, how they can really feel you. Connection, first of all, for me. Everybody has his own approach to the music. And mine is more who are listening to me. Can you hear me? Can you feel it? Just feel me, yeah. My music is very difficult to be described. What I can say, I'm lucky to have traditional music that Malian people have, the blues, the original of the blues sound, through our ancestral instruments, like the kora, ngoni, balafon, bolon, thousand, thousand instruments that speak a language. We just have to follow how those instruments speak. And then from that kind of speaking, we can adapt ourselves to other type of music. For me, for sure, this tradition is from Mali, but I can say it belongs to all of the world because music is a language. It is the first language. It keeps African people surviving, and I think many people, not only the African people to survive, we need music. It is the opposite of war. I'm trying to keep one hand to to the tradition and the other end to, to the modern side. And I'm lucky when I've been starting playing music, the world opens to me. I have a lot of support. Damon Albarni is my brother. He always invites me for many projects. Damon's very sensitive person like me and I was lucky just he chose my my spirit just to be close to him yesterday we were together at later with Jules it was so natural simple I love to be with him and I think himself too because I think we got something in common which is being ourselves so I was in Paris working on Le Vol de Bully. It was an opera, and we were there for one or two years together. And at that time, Damon had the idea to make the album. I had always the songs, and I told him that, yeah, the album is almost done, but why not? Let's try to do something while we're together. And in Paris, we've been to the studio. The first song, 
Nsera. And uh, when he found bum 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 bum, then we were so happy. How the arrangement and when he's been singing on the song. And it's Demon who first said London Bamako, you know. He was so happy that we could find this bridge. And he was looking for this for a long time. He said, you are the bridge between Bamako and the rest of the world. This is London and Bamako. And I said, okay, London Co. Then we've, we've been starting to sing at the end of this song, London Co. Dun, 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 London Co. That's it. It was Demon. <laughs> Demon's our idea. People look at me and say, thank you. At the airport, when I go to the airport, people see me like I'm not a Malian. Because my mentality is quite, you know, different. And I receive a lot of messages. Many girls and boys tell me, you're living our life, our dream, you know. You know, it's also how playing the guitar, how I dress. It's a different way of a woman speaking. That's why we should have a more female emancipated, you know, free to express themselves. Because our vision is different. We think differently. And it's beauty when one can really show how she is having her freedom. Back home, I feel very strong. Even the government, people really respect me, my person. Because I don't border people. I just do what I want to do with a lot of respect. totally different. The feeling with the people, the audience in front of you is totally medical. It heals you. And I thought that it was only me, but it's incredible. It's like my band is the thing. They are all excited to be on the stage and that's wonderful. I love Fatumata Diavara, and of course, she's on the Monaco Radio playlist as well. And that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week, and thank you for listening. Music